I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Of course, I'm going to start by reminding you about my Patreon campaign, just in case you've been enjoying the show and also have a few bucks to spare each month. Right now, I'm using the Patreon money to subsidize the cost of transcribing the podcast. So if you're interested and able to contribute, you can find that at patreon.com slash noendinsight. This week, I'm talking to Mahala May about chronic constipation and incontinence, fibromyalgia, vaginismus, and IBS. We also veer off into some of the usual conversations about medical gaslighting, the benefits of diagnosis, and sharing your story. Before we start, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your doctor about any questions or symptoms. Well, I like to get started just by asking, how was your health as a kid? Sure. Uh, So that's like a really complicated question. (laughs) So, uh, man, um, I would say my memories of childhood are very sparse. I um, have a lot of blank spaces, a lot of places where I'm like, I don't really know what happened at that point in my life. But one of the major things that I remember for sure is that when I was three, I was hospitalized for three days um, for constipation. Okay. I had been struggling with that for a very long time, and I don't really know how it first started, but um, I think I just, like, at a certain point, like, recognized that sometimes when I would need to have a bowel movement, it would hurt. Mm-hmm. And that scared me. Mm-hmm. So I would just stop myself. So for years, I was holding it in to the point where I was, like, screaming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, my family was concerned that neighbors would think that I was being abused because I was screaming, like, bloody murder every day. Um, because I was just trying to hold it in so much. And... um it was terrifying for me, but it was also terrifying for my terrifying for my parents because they knew like that would not end well. Right, right. It can't stay um, in there forever. Yeah. So um, I was hospitalized eventually for three days when I was three and had to have a feeding tube and I had like um, laxatives and I had like this mat on the bed where they would have me have bowel movements on the bed okay um so it was very um embarrassing a little bit um uh kind of felt like it took away my dignity in a sense but at that age it was kind of like a fluctuation of like I I wasn't like that wasn't fully developed in me but it was also Mm -hmm. really difficult um and just most of all it was terrifying (laughs) um even to this day just talking about it I get a lot of anxiety Mm -hmm. um because I think it's one of the most traumatic things that I've experienced um so I actually believe that my uh fibromyalgia that I have today may have been triggered by that trauma when I was a kid Mm -hmm. um so yeah that happened and I was hospitalized and they did x-rays and found out that the um, stool in my body had built up to the point where it was almost to my throat. So the threat was that it was going to come out my mouth. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, this is future Brianne jumping in to say that Mahala misspoke here and her stool was actually backed up to her stomach, not her throat. Anyway, back to the story. So it was like, we have to do something now kind of situation. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, it was really scary. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and I, I of course, as a three-year-old, didn't really understand everything that was going on. Right. Um, I just knew, like, I had to trust the people there. And I was really afraid of that, but also felt like I had no choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually was speaking with a counselor um, recently. And in talking with her about this stuff, a memory came back that I had not remembered in a long time. And that was the memory of the feeding tube going in Mm. and me being totally terrified. And um, so there's just like a lot of things that I think my brain kind of like blocked out because it was like, this is too traumatic. You can't remember this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, things like that have been coming back and I'm hoping to get more counseling to um, go through that because there's a lot that I still can't remember mm-hmm. and there's also some that I can remember but I'm having a difficult time kind of working through trying to heal from that yeah yeah and yeah I imagine it's like three three years old is young like you said it's like you're <laughs> mm-hmm. you know lots of people don't have full memories at that time which I don't mean in a dismissive way at all but like right, yeah. it's such a frag <laughs> by the time you're an adult it's you're like your distance from it makes it so fragmented and sometimes and sometimes your memories are informed by the way that you have remembered it at other ages, like when it's a mm-hmm. story that you tell a lot. Like there's so many layers yeah. kind of built into these experiences as you get further away from them that can make it hard and like hard to unpack by yourself. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and that uh, that trauma, I think it impacts me a lot still because um it's not something that ever fully went away. So my whole life I've struggled with constipation Mm -hmm. and not really known why for a lot of the time. Um, I had like suspicions a few years ago that it might've been encapresis. Hmm. Um, And I talked to doctors about that and they were like, eh, maybe, but like, didn't really feel like that was a thing. And I I don't think I was ever really confident that that was it either, but I just didn't know where else to go. Yeah. so I was really just kind of confused by the whole thing. Um, and as a kid, I had, um, I think that was when my constipation was at its worst for sure. So I had a lot of times where, um, like it would, (laughs) my stool would have to come, I would have to have a bowel movement and it would be terrifying, but it would be like something out of my control. Mm-hmm. So my mom would often be in the bathroom with me, like massaging my back and like helping me get through it. And I would just be in like a state of shock and terror. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, honestly, this is a little disturbing, but I feel like it kind of it felt similar to how I would imagine childbirth would feel mm. in a lot of circumstances, because it, I would tear like enough to bleed and it would just be so scary and so out of my control and um yeah so it was very frequent when I was a kid and as I got older I learned a little bit more how to manage it so now I still have times when I tear and it's horrible um but they're a lot less frequent like Mm -hmm. that'll happen like maybe once a month um maybe not even that much yeah uh so it's still really scary because I still have like that I know this is gonna happen again because like I haven't completely gotten this taken care of, but it's certainly not as bad as it was when I was a kid. And Mm -hmm. um, I actually have never really wanted to be 
a mom and I kind of wonder now if that has to do with that because yeah. like I know I'm terrified of childbirth like I never want to experience that but I kind of wonder if that trauma and that like association with how I think childbirth might feel is kind of what scares me about it yeah and that plays into another thing now that um, I recently found out that I have vaginismus which is like an involuntary contraction of the vaginal muscles and it prevents any sort of penetration or anything like that Mm -hmm. and it's extremely painful and um, it can often be caused by psychological fear and trauma and that kind of stuff and I've tried to figure out why and then I've been thinking you know like there's so much trauma that's happened in that area it could just be like a subconscious like (laughs) nothing like my body does not want anything happening down there yeah you know so I don't know yeah. I feel like a big old puzzle that's like spread everywhere and I don't really know how to put the pieces together. Yeah, you're like noticing new connections, <laughs> but it's not helping necessarily to yeah. find any answers yet. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. And that would, of course, at three years old, like that's the beginning of everything. Yeah. <laughs> um. So and so you said you went to the hospital and then I imagine continued to try and manage this or at that point your parents yeah. continued to try and manage mm-hmm. it. And so right. did how did that impact like your diet and your ability to kind of be in the world cuz I would think that's really uncomfortable it would affect yes. like everything right Absolutely yeah so uh, man diet wise I didn't really figure out that much for like a long time but mm-hmm. um at some point I did figure out that gluten severely impacts it and makes the constipation way worse so I have gone pretty much 100% away from gluten, which has helped a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's one of the biggest things that's helped. Um, also, um, like potatoes and corn, I found that those things make it a lot worse. Um, but a lot of these things, like growing up, I loved them so much that I just didn't have the motivation to stop eating them. Yeah. But I think once I discovered like how awful they were to my body and how much they were just making my life miserable, I was like, you know what? No, like, goodbye. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. It becomes easier if there's like an right. obvious connection between a food and a symptom, yeah. for sure, compared to when it's just <laughs> like an idea, an idea of health yeah. that it might help you with. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and as far as... Uh, going through life and how that impacted it um I went through a lot of uh, um fear of judgment a lot of kind of fear of like if someone found out that I have chronic constipation um I would just be like the subject of jokes and mockery and Mm -hmm. it was really scary um to add to that um not as traumatic, but definitely embarrassing. Throughout that whole part of my life, I also had stress incontinence that was so, so extreme that I had no control over it. Like Mm -hmm. it was to the point where like, I would have an accident and I would not know that I had to. So like it would just happen and I'd be like, oh, I didn't know that was coming. So it was completely out of my control. And I like wore diapers way longer than most kids did so that was extremely embarrassing and Mm -hmm. then I would have accidents frequently and um generally when those accidents would happen it would be because I was laughing Mm -hmm. (laughs) because like laughing 
was the stressor that would cause that incontinence. And there wasn't really anything else that would cause it. But Hmm. I am a person who laughs all the time. Like I'm constantly laughing. It's kind of a quirk of mine. So that was kind of like difficult growing up because it was like any time I would laugh really hard, which was frequent, I would have no control over my bladder. Right. So it was like, that was one of the most extreme things when I was a kid that really had an impact on how I lived. Cause I'd always have to bring like extra underwear and extra pants and that kind of stuff. And I'd, um, in school, when I was in elementary school, I'd have to go see the nurse frequently. And, um, as a kid, I remember her being really sweet, but mm-hmm. my parents have told me now that she was actually really irritated with how often I would go see her. Yeah. So little did I know, but <laughs> right. Which at least that um, part is good that you didn't feel that, yeah. but it's still not better really. <laughs> no. Yeah. So like there was that and like anytime I would spend the night at a, at a friend's house, it was always a risk that something would happen and like I'd cause a mess on their couch or whatever and it would be embarrassing. And it was just like this constant thing that was like following me and I was like, this could happen anytime and I could be in the worst possible scenario, which I was mm-hmm. <laughs> frequently. Um, so that was really difficult. And I think all of that just kind of played into me feeling really, uh, self-conscious and also being very shy. Mm -hmm. I was extremely shy for like the majority of my younger life. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Um, so all that has been happening (laughs) all along and then Mm -hmm. did was there a certain moment when you started to experience some other problems with your body or did you kind of have a gradual onset of other stuff going on? So it was pretty gradual, I would say. Um, I don't remember how old I was. I know it, I was really, really young when I started noticing um, more pain. Mm-hmm. But the uh, kind of unfortunate circumstance about that was that um, – when I started noticing that I associated it in my brain with just, Oh, that just happens to everybody. Yeah. When reach age. But I was a kid. Right. So like, no, it doesn't happen to everybody. <laughs> no, but I think um, kids are way more susceptible to thinking that way because right. you don't have a different experience to compare it to. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I definitely remember that there was a day, I don't know how old I was, but there was a day when I, um, just felt like crawling for some reason. So I was crawling as a kid and I remember my knees and my hands hurting. Mm -hmm. And it was like a moment when I was like, what? This has never happened before. So I remember that for sure being like, oh, wow, that hurts now. That Mm -hmm. didn't used to hurt. But I just felt that and was like, well, I guess that's what happens. So I don't think I ever actually really mentioned it that early to my parents. Um, But as I grew up, things like more things started hurting, but it's normal things. And um, I think my parents, like they've told me now that they thought for a long time I had some sort of nervous system thing. Mm -hmm. But as a kid, I was so stuck in that like, oh, this is normal mindset that I don't think I really caught on Mm -hmm. to what they were thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, So I grew up for a long time thinking this is normal, therefore... I'm weak or I have very low pain tolerance. Right. So I'm just not coping like... as well as everyone else is. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that was a thing for a very long time. Actually, um, that was a thing until I was 17. 
that's mm-hmm. when I found out that it was not normal, which is a long time. Like, I don't know how I went that long, but I did. Um, but yeah, um, that feeling pain more extremely when I was that young and thinking it was normal definitely made social situations difficult hmm. um, in a lot of circumstances. Um, like at school, um, there was like that kind of playful time where it was like people would just kind of like nudge you or whatever, or they'd like poke you or um, I don't know if you ever experienced this, but like that thing where people would like say, hey, give me your pinky and then they'd like squeeze it and it just hurts really, really bad. That was a thing when I was a kid. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know really that mean, one, but, but I can imagine these things happening for sure. <laughs> it was like so painful. And I remember like things like that happening where people would like nudge me or like gently punch me in the arm or whatever. And it would hurt really bad for me. So I would react like mm-hmm. in that. So I would be like, oh my gosh, that hurt really bad. Why would you do that? And then right. they'd make fun of me. And right. be like, that doesn't hurt. And they'd like do it to themselves and be like, see, it doesn't hurt. And I'd be like crying right. in so much pain, but also feeling like I need to suck it up because yeah. it shouldn't hurt that bad. Yeah. And like, you so, must be dramatic for reacting this way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I grew up with a lot of that, like a lot of being teased because it doesn't hurt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but me feeling like, why does this hurt so much? And then thinking like, because it hurts so much for me, it must hurt that much for everyone else, but I can't handle it. Mm -hmm. unlike everyone else. So like everyone else can handle it, but I can't. So like that just kept playing down on my self-esteem and like how I felt like I was coping with things. And I just was really down on myself for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And um, it was actually a conversation with a friend. I wish I could remember who this friend was, but I can't. (laughs) Um, but there was a conversation with a friend when I was 17, um, where I was talking to her about some pain I had been experiencing and how I was like really, really tired and just in a lot of pain everywhere. And I was like, just talking about it and like letting it out. And then I was like, but I know everyone goes through that. So whatever. And she was like, um, what? Yeah. She was like, not at all. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, uh, yeah, no, I mean, like, that's totally normal. And she was like, no, it's not. And I was like, yeah, it is. (laughs) I was so stuck in it. And she was like, no, people don't like, they don't go through that much pain all the time. That's not normal at all. And I was like, what? No, I like, I didn't believe her. Yeah. But like, that got me thinking. So, um, after that conversation, I started actually like intentionally going out and talking to people and being like, Hey, is this normal? Like, yeah, I always thought it was normal, but my friend said it wasn't. Is it really not normal? Yeah. (laughs) I was really confused. And like, everyone was confirming what she said that it wasn't normal. And I was like, ah, like my whole reality is like completely changed now. It's like a paradigm shift. Yeah. I was like, what is happening? Like I was so shaken by that. And, um, so I eventually started realizing what I was feeling wasn't normal. So I started analyzing it more and thinking like, okay, what am I actually feeling? Like, where am I feeling this pain and what could possibly be causing it? I've always been a researcher. So I would like look around and be like, okay, what could this possibly be? Mm -hmm. And at the time my sister had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia Oh, and, um, she had multiple other things and I have an aunt who has fibromyalgia 
Um, so I was like, okay, maybe it's that. So I was hanging out with her one night and, um, just started kind of comparing symptoms with her. And I was like, Hey, so like, is this what you feel? Like, what is your fibro to you? What is it? Mm -hmm. Like I go through this, do you go through that? And she'd like kind of bounce back and forth with like what she was feeling and what I was feeling. And, um, at the end of that night, I was like, oh my gosh, like just about everything you've described I go through Yeah. because like at the time, our symptoms matched up so, so much. And the only thing that didn't match up was migraines because mm-hmm. she'd have migraines all the time and I didn't have any. Right. But that was the only thing. So I was like, oh my gosh, I might have fibro. What? Yeah. <laughs> I was like so confused and like, oh, okay, wow. Um, so after that, I just immediately jumped on it and I talked to my doctor and I was like, hey, so I think I have fibro. Um, my sister has it. My aunt has it. I know it's in the family. Um, and I don't know. I just like found out that this wasn't normal and compared symptoms with my sister. So my doctor um, went through the diagnostic material and she did like the outdated diagnostic material. Like the but... trigger point stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but she did that and I had every single one of them. Hmm. And you're only supposed to have like a certain amount out of the like 18, I think it was. Mm-hmm. But I had every single one. And um, so she was like, kind of like, oh, <laughs> when she found that out. And she also did um, a bunch of tests to rule out other things because that's also part of the diagnostic stuff. Yeah. Do you um, remember what that involved? <laughs> like what was ruled out? I don't fully remember. I want to say it might have been like Lyme's disease, that kind of thing. Um, but I know there's some people out there that have Lyme's and they also have fibro. So I don't really, I don't really know. <laughs> for it's sure. complicated. Definitely. Yeah, it's very complicated. Um, but yeah, I don't fully remember all the tests they did. But um, after all, like the trigger point thing and all that, she, I remember her looking at me and being like, I have absolutely no doubt that you have fibromyalgia like you have way more evidence than you need yeah and um I was like (laughs) great okay sure. Um, (laughs) yeah so she actually was really hesitant to diagnose me which is something that I was a little bit frustrated about because I was like okay so you're like 100% sure that I have fibro but you don't really want to diagnose me like what's up with that Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and um, she told me that she didn't want to diagnose me because she was worried that I would go into depression. What? And I was like, (laughs) yeah, I know. I was like, okay, well, I don't think I'm going to go into depression. But even if I don't, like, diagnosis is really important. (laughs) I mean, it makes you credible because, like, you have an official diagnosis. You're just not like, hey, I have this, like, self-diagnosing and, like, saying that's absolute. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's just like, it's something to reassure you. Like there's something wrong and it has a name. Yeah. And so I was like, this is really important. And like, even if I do go into depression, I need this. Like, if this is what I have, I need a diagnosis. Yeah. And, and, and if you, and like, if it has an adverse effect on your mental health, it's not because the doctor wrote it in your chart. Like yeah, that, no isn't the thing that makes it difficult. The thing that makes it difficult is living with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I don't know. It was really, like, frustrating. And how old were you at this point? Because you said you were 17 17. when you realized... So you're 17 at this point, too. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So um, I was really frustrated by that, but I just kind of like kept talking to her and I was like, hey, no, like even if I go into depression, I need this. Like I persuaded her into saying, okay. And so she diagnosed me and as she predicted, I did go into depression for about a month afterwards and it was not (laughs) one of my best times, but Mm -hmm. that's to be expected because like my whole world had changed. Yeah. Like my whole perspective on who I was was changing I mean it was not only like this um like not reassurance but like it wasn't only this um what's the word (laughs) um I can't think of the word um one I can edit out any blanks while you're thinking (laughs) and two if you want to like talk through it then we can try to find it whatever feels better for you I don't mind giving you a minute to think though when like something's going on and then something assures you that it's actually something that's real there's a word for that and i can't remember mm. what validating yes okay. yeah validating <laughs> yes yeah so um it just like not only is it validating that yeah. um there's a name for it and um that it's not just something that um is normal mm-hmm. and it's also uh it, it was also this realization of <clears throat> um, all this pain that I've experienced isn't normal. So it was kind of this shift in my perspective of my own pain tolerance mm-hmm. because I was realizing I don't have the world's worst pain tolerance. I actually have pretty high pain tolerance because I can pretend to be normal <laughs> right. in the midst of all this. Right. And that's really and, different. Yeah. Yeah. So that was like, it was really validating and really like reassuring. Like I'm not, I'm not weak. I'm Mm -hmm. not, I don't have really, really low pain tolerance. Um, But then it was also kind of like solemn and depressing because it was like, okay, so yeah, I mean, it's validating, but it's also something that doesn't have a cure right now. It's something that's very medically, um, confusing (laughs) and there isn't there isn't much um solid information about it and there's a lot of people who still believe that it's a thing right and um there's just a lot of confusion and misinformation around it and there's also a lot of lack of understanding there's a lot of like some doctors think this some think this and nothing's really that conclusive right so it, it was a very confusing time because there was a lot of like wow, I feel so much better about myself. Um, But then there was also a lot of, oh my gosh, I might have this for the rest of my life and it's probably going to get worse. And Mm -hmm. how am I going to look at this? (laughs) Yeah. So it was everything at once. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's been like three, two and a half, three years. Well, more than that. I don't know. (laughs) It's been a couple. But yeah. Because that was one of the things that I was thinking just at the beginning when you said, well, at the beginning of this part, and you said your doctor didn't want to actually give you the diagnosis. That Mm -hmm. reason makes no sense to me. There are reasons that I I can wrap my head around. I don't, Mm -hmm. like, agree with necessarily, but I can wrap my head around it when doctors are like, listen, this aligns. And also having fibro in your chart can, Mm -hmm. like, because of what you just said, right? Like some doctors think it's not real. Some doctors will like 
hold it against you. It creates bias. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's helpful. I'm not arguing that people shouldn't have fibro in their chart or anything. (laughs) But, like, I can imagine a circumstance where a doctor would say that. And, like, I can get my head into that as a reason. But saying that giving you a diagnosis – anyway. But, yeah, it's it's complicated because – of all the reasons that you just listed and because I think like sometimes fibro and ME are both like this. Like mm-hmm. we are slowly finding some explanations for why some people have these symptoms. And so some yeah. people are being like pulled out of that umbrella with mm-hmm. an explanation which can be like legitimizing, which I just put in air quotes right. because <laughs> it's unfortunate like – the symptoms are legitimate no matter what, but all of a sudden, once they can explain it scientifically, like doctors think that it's more real or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, all of these problems are just like baked in to the diagnosis for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah. so then at this point, you're 17 and you've been diagnosed and you've also been managing your digestive stuff. Um, yeah. Are there any... Well, actually, so one, I think I sort of asked this, but had you been taking any medication for the digestive stuff? No. No. Okay. And so at this point in time, when you're diagnosed with fibro, um, did the doctor suggest any either lifestyle interventions or medications to try for symptom management? So uh, I'm pretty sure that she did suggest a drug, I think. (laughs) I don't remember for sure. Um, But the majority of my life I've been kind of um I've been very hesitant towards pharmaceutical drugs mm-hmm. like I don't really necessarily feel 100% against them um but I'm more like in the state where I feel like if it's totally 100% necessary then I'll take it but if it's not I will try to find something else or just not take it at all mm-hmm. Um, so like even with like ibuprofen and that kind of stuff, like my doctor recently just told me that, um, it might be a good idea for me to take like a really high dose of ibuprofen for my fibro because like the normal doses don't touch it. But then I was like, that can be like really damaging to my liver and like all kinds of other things. So I was like, I don't really feel like that's necessary. Mm -hmm. I don't really feel like that's something that I really want to do because like it might be helping my pain but it's in turn causing other problems that Mm -hmm. I'll have to deal with later Mm -hmm. so um I actually only take ibuprofen like once a month and Mm -hmm. that's like the first day of my period (laughs) because it's so bad like I can't handle it yeah without that um but yeah so that's kind of where I've been with that so I um I didn't say yes to the drugs for fibromyalgia Um, but even with that, it was like, um, the drugs that they suggest for fibromyalgia are really kind of guesswork. Oh yeah. It's not like, there's not like a specific drug for fibro. Like Mm -hmm. they choose other things and antidepressants are one of the most popular ones. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it, I definitely said no to that one. Mm -hmm. And also in, uh, like in context with that doctor not wanting to diagnose me for fibro, um, later on, I think it was maybe within the year, I um, discovered that the digestive issues I had might have been IBS, might have been irritable irritable bowel syndrome. Mm -hmm. So I spoke with that same doctor about it and tried to see if she could check me for it. 
And so she asked me a bunch, a bunch of questions and she was like, yeah, I have no doubt you have this. It was another situation like that where she was like, yeah, no doubt. Um, but she was hesitant to diagnose me again. Uh-huh. And this time it was because I don't want to take any pharmaceutical drugs. So she felt like there was no point in having a diagnosis because I wasn't going to have any pharmaceutical drugs. Mm-hmm. But then it was like the same situation all over again. Like diagnosis is for more than just pharmaceutical drugs. They're yeah. for integrity. Mm-hmm. For one thing, like saying I have this and actually having a medical diagnosis. Um but also, like, there's so many other things that are intertwined with that. Like, I was in college at the time. So, like, accessibility resources, that kind of thing, they wouldn't work with me unless I had an official diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And also, just having one makes me feel reassured because I know this is actually a thing, you right. know? <laughs> so there's a lot of things that are involved in that other than just getting pharmaceutical drugs yeah yeah so I eventually changed from that PCP to another one <laughs> yeah that sounds like a good because <laughs> I was like yeah no I don't really want to work with you anymore yeah so the one I'm with now is a lot better but she's still got her things she doesn't really investigate without me doing the self-diagnosis first and being like hey I think I might have this and then she's like okay, let's run this and this, and then, okay, yeah, you probably have it. And she will refer me to a lot of people, but she doesn't actually really investigate. But I have a naturopath who's investigating, mm-hmm. so that's nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it takes, yeah. A, <laughs> takes a village sometimes, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, and so, so were you, did you end up getting, like, a formal IBS diagnosis for what it is worth? Yes, <laughs> I did, yeah. The new PCP that I have now she gave me a formal diagnosis because I explained to her what happened with the other one. She was like, well, that's ridiculous. (laughs) So I was really thankful that she agreed. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I have an official diagnosis now. Yeah, it's it's definitely ridiculous. And also, um, just to add to the list that you just gave, which was a good one, (laughs) it's also like being on the lookout for comorbidities. It's like a lot of conditions are frequently comorbid with other conditions. Yeah. <laughs> and so if it's on your chart, that can help other doctors like be a detective with you as needed. And that's important too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, so then that's kind of like the diagnostic side. How was school? Like how has it been to be navigating with this going on? <laughs> yeah. It's hard. Ooh. Yeah. That's a tough one. Uh, wow. So, my life has changed a lot since diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I was in school at the time that I got diagnosed. Um, I had been in college since um, late 2015. So I was 16 at that time. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I had been in college for probably a year at least before I got diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really difficult, definitely. But once I got diagnosed and kind of um, went through that month of depression, obviously that month was very difficult with college because I was dealing with not wanting to get out of bed and not wanting to do things, not wanting to do my assignments, just feeling like really um, unmotivated to do anything. And um, so that was very difficult. But um, I believe at that time if I'm remembering correctly, I was working as a peer coach at 
my college. So I was helping people with resume building and with homework and assignments. And I was um, assisting in event planning and that kind of thing. So I really enjoyed that, but it just, it was very difficult, <laughs> um, of course, as well. But um, I think I had gotten to a point where I was limiting how many courses I was doing every quarter because I found out that like two courses was the most I could do. Mm -hmm. I like that was like at my limit. If I did three, I was completely overwhelmed and couldn't get good grades. Mm -hmm. And so two was like my maximum. And I was working just like maybe four hours a week. Um, but I eventually was actually asked by the um, student life coordinator to apply for student government. <laughs> so I was like, really um humbled by that but I also took a long time to make the decision I think yeah. I took like most of the quarter because I was like uh like I don't know how I feel about this this is a lot mm -hmm. sounds like a lot of responsibility um but the student life coordinator kept on coming back and being like hey you should apply come on like yeah. you need to apply and he was like watching me as I was working as a peer coach and just mm -hmm. uh, kept trying to push me to apply so I was like at the end of the quarter, I was like, okay, fine, I'll apply. <laughs> so um, I did and went through a panel of six people interviewing me, which was so scary. <laughs> it was interview-based instead of election-based. Okay. Um, so I was like, oh, yikes. Um, but I eventually got um, hired, in a sense, to mm -hmm. the uh, student government. And um, so I went like I signed a year contract so I had to be there for a year and it was amazing it was one of the best years of my life mm -hmm. because it was just so um confidence building and it really like made me realize um my potential as a leader when I had never seen myself that way yeah um and I was able to make a difference at the school which was like really impacting and really like like it made me feel like I had purpose outside of just being a student mm -hmm. and um so it was incredible but it was also extremely difficult and I had to miss many days I had to call in sick a lot yeah. <laughs> very frequently and I'm so thankful to my boss for how understanding he was because he was one of the best employers I've ever had he was very um very kind and very understanding and whenever I had something come up because he knew what I was going through um, whenever I had something come up, he'd be like, it's taken care of. Like, don't worry about it. We will handle it and yeah. just take care of yourself. So it was really, really nice. Um, but I also just got so overwhelmed, like physically and mentally. I remember having flare-ups so frequently and um, just having a hard time thinking, which was really difficult, especially in my job like position, because I was the note taker for every official meeting. Um, so difficult. I had like legal stuff on my shoulders and I was like the one responsible for making sure that everything was done correctly in the minutes. And, um, so I just was constantly scared and like feeling like, what if I mess up and mm -hmm. all that? Um, so I'm thankful for the team around me, but it just became so overwhelming. And at the end of that year, I decided to quit school entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, I had just come to this place of complete burnout and I was like, I, I love this school and I want to be here, but I just can't anymore. Yeah. So 
Um, ever since then, I've been wanting to go back, but I just can't see myself going back yet. I feel like I've got to be in a place where I'm financially independent and learning how to manage my sicknesses much mm-hmm. better <laughs> because like yeah it's a lot to balance and go back yeah 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 definitely so it was very difficult but I shared my story a few times during that time and that actually being in college and being a student leader was kind of what brought me out of my shell and mm-hmm. helped me to realize what I was passionate about and that was spreading vulnerability and um, yeah advocacy yeah yeah it's big work like yeah definitely <laughs> Yeah, um, sure. And so since then, you're talking about like trying to figure out financials and trying to figure out how to manage your condition, which by itself mm-hmm. is huge. Um, yeah. Kind of what have you been up to and what have you experimented with or what have you found that's been helpful? Like whichever one of these questions is resonating <laughs> the most, basically. Sure. Um, so oh, a lot of things. Um, I have been trying to do everything I can recently um, as far as health insurance goes because I'm turning 21 in February on Mm -hmm. February 5th and when I do I lose my health insurance entirely so yeah I'm really like trying to do everything right now (laughs) so like I'm doing physical therapy and I'm trying to find a counselor and I'm um, going to be seeing an occupational therapist soon because I've been suspecting arthritis of some sort in my hands I've been having a lot of swelling and pain mm-hmm. and I also have nerve damage because I stabbed my hand like a couple of years ago um <laughs> so I'm going to be seeing an occupational therapist soon I'm also going to be seeing a physical therapist for vaginismus soon which I'm so scared about but I mm-hmm. also know that it's something that's really important and I need to address um, and can I just say, as like a quick side note there, yeah. um, episode 51 of this podcast, which just came out last week. I actually week. saw that. Yeah. I saw it and I was like, ah, Yeah. Um, she, I don't know that she actually has vaginismus, but mm-hmm. she talks specifically about pelvic floor physical therapy. Yeah. And she has her own podcast that's just about this kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. one or both of those might be really good resources wow. for just like, what does it entail? Can it be like a little bit less scary? Cause she really liked the PT. Good. So that's all as an aside. (laughs) Yeah. I'll definitely have to check that out. Um, yeah. So that's pretty much what I've been doing. I've also been, uh, with this naturopath since she's actually investigating and advocating unlike any other, um, medical professional I've ever seen, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually cried after the first appointment with her because yeah. I was like, it kind of all like collected in my emotions because like I walked out of the building and like that's when everything hit me. I was like, oh my gosh, like she is actually caring about this and she actually wants to make a difference. And it yeah. just like all hit me. Um, but I've been working with her for a little while now and she has already done so many more tests than any other medical professional has even thought of. Mm -hmm. And she found that I have a genetic mutation, which I don't think would have been found by anyone else. She actually said that she wasn't even sure if she was going to get that test ordered. And then she was just like, eh, sure, might as well. And that was like the only thing that she found in the Mm -hmm. tests. Um, Was it MTHFR? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. (laughs) 
Yeah, I actually have two copies of the same mutation from mm-hmm. both of my parents. And um, it just makes my body incapable of converti- converting folic acid into active folate. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's been having me eliminate folic acid from my diet and supplement with folate. Um which I really don't know if that's making a difference right now. Right. <laughs> I wish it was, but I, I don't feel like it is. It's been a really rough um, few months and I'm not feeling much improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm supplementing with a few things right now, like vitamin D and um, some like vitamin B complex thing that has folate in it and uh, probiotic. And I'm taking a thyroid support thing right now. Mm-hmm. Um because apparently my thyroid is in like a good range right now, but my brain is asking for more of it. And there's like some conversion thing that's not happening. Mm-hmm. So the, my body's kind of messed up in that sense. But as with a lot of people with chronic illness, a lot of my blood tests come back totally normal or totally healthy. Yeah. And so that can be like really frustrating. I think for, for some people who don't... Um, have chronic illness and they're more like in the healthy range that can be like a positive like oh yeah I don't have what I thought I had but I feel like for a lot of people in the chronic illness community it's more like great like there's another thing that just says there's nothing wrong with you right but obviously there's something wrong with you yeah. so it's been difficult and especially recently because I got an inflammation blood test and I got a rheumatoid arthritis blood test and an autoimmune blood test, all of them came back normal. So my PCP was like, oh, you have no inflammation in your system. And I'm like, I am swelling in my hands every single day. Yep, I have been there. (laughs) Yeah, and like there's no sign of rheumatoid arthritis and there's no sign of any autoimmune conditions. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, ah, but I talked to my naturopath and she's going to have me do like a bunch more rheumatoid arthritis tests and a bunch more inflammation tests and autoimmune tests. And she can actually see the inflammation in my hands. So I feel like more is going to be done in that sense. But I just like right now I'm getting so much done with my health, but it's like so overwhelming. Yeah. It's, like, it's a lot of information. Referral after referral. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> tons of information. Yeah. Yeah, I have been there. And like for me, it's it's funny because just weird stuff like comes out of it, you know, like the connections are not always very clear because yeah. for me, I had really, really swollen hands and knuckles mm-hmm. um, for quite a while. And it was caused by toxic mold. Like I was living in yeah. a house that has mold that had mold in it. And I, I was yeah. the same. Like all of my blood tests were coming back normal. My rheumatoid right. factor was normal. Like all of my yeah. autoimmune markers are normal. But I was like, mm-hmm. okay, but... My hands are visibly swollen and yeah. it hurts to use them and <laughs> right. exactly. and it went away when I was yeah. not in mold anymore. And like my PCP again had no like would never have caught that or even suggested right. that. She was like yeah. she did an x ray. I had a hand x ray on my hands and she was like, No, your x ray is fine, so there's not a problem here. It's like, no, yeah. there's a problem here. It's yeah, just not right. that one. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> frustrating thing when they're not like willing to investigate and it's just it feels very dismissive Mm because it's like obviously there's a thing happening yeah but just because this one test doesn't show it doesn't mean we should just give up on searching yeah yeah and it doesn't mean that like some of these things can't be really improved like like for me that one like I still have health problems for sure but getting out of mold completely fixed 
my swollen joints. Like I almost, yeah. And I almost like, I have some joint pain, like in my hips sometimes, but not never in my hands. And so whenever it's like this stuff comes up, it's like, okay, (laughs) there's one thing to be like, I think some, especially some alternative providers like naturopaths, I think can over promise sometimes and be like (laughs) very overconfident about their ability to fix everything with like a couple of subtle hormonal adjustments. But I also like, I've had the experience and I've talked to a lot of people who've had the experience where like some things really were resolved through that line of treatment. And like the mold tests were done by a naturopath for me. So yeah, you know, it's all mixed up together sometimes. Yeah. Definitely. That's something I've actually been thinking about, too, is that um, some of what I've been going through might have to do with mold toxicity. Mm -hmm. So I'd never really thought that before because I I didn't think that I was seeing direct results of mold Mm -hmm. um, in my system. But um, the more I'm learning about that, the more I'm realizing a lot of my symptoms might be related to that because the house I'm living in now, um, for the majority of the time that I've lived here, I've lived here since I was seven, it was extremely like extremely moldy so like you'd get used to it when you're in here for a while but then you'd leave and come back and it's like oh Mm -hmm. so much mold it's not like that anymore the smell is like gone pretty much and I think there's just little small places in our house that have it but I still wonder sometimes like Mm -hmm. if that's causing some of the things so I've been considering talking to my naturopath about that yeah and it's it's, it's, I feel like it's like everything else. It's really difficult to navigate. Like there's mm-hmm. conflicting information online. For me, yeah. in my case, it turned out that like the mold that was in our house, which was called chitomium, like mm-hmm. it was an identifiable toxic mold. It's one, yeah. chitomium and stachybotrys are like the two that they do are like, there's no safe amount of this mold in your environment. Like these are mm-hmm. bad molds. But a right. lot of people who think who think that they might have mold illness or have been affected by mold, never get that like smoking gun mold report and still Mm -hmm. are like, you know, I left this environment and it cleared up or I spent a lot of time, money and energy trying to leave this environment and nothing changed. It's Mm -hmm. like one more pathway that can yield incredible results or not. And that's absolutely like everything. I feel like everything for chronic illness is in that family of like, It might make you better. It might cost a lot and do nothing. Yeah, Yeah, it's very, very unknown. There's a lot of like, I feel like there's a lot of like scales of like, "Mm, maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe not. Like, Mm -hmm. and for some people, it like something works great for them, even if they have the same condition as you. Yeah. And then it doesn't work at all for you. So it's like, it's very difficult to navigate for sure. Yeah. And, um, there's something else I was going to say and I don't remember what it was. Um, (sighs) My brain has been in this state for so long where it's like, yeah, yeah. Information. It is totally Um, normal. um, Something to do with my naturopath. Um, (sighs) Was it when I said that sometimes they were overconfident? (laughs) Yes, actually. Wow. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I I really enjoy having her as a naturopath. She's been incredible at advocating for me and um, finding new information. And I actually shared that with her and she was like, oh, can I give you a hug? She was like really, really happy about that. But definitely there's some areas where I disagree with her in Mm -hmm. that sense. Like um, just in my last appointment with her, um, I was talking to her about some things and she 
made a statement that was like, um, some of these things, like, I'm confident that we may be able to get rid of your fibromyalgia, like, completely. Mm -hmm. And I was like, (laughs) so, like, when she said that, I was like, hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't, like, directly be like, oh, yeah, definitely. Or be like, absolutely not. What's wrong with you? I was just kind of like, hmm. (laughs) But, like, inside, I was like, yeah, no, I don't know about that. Like, maybe. Yeah. It would be a miracle. But then I'm also, like, there are so many, like, false promises out there and so many um, things that claim they cure everybody. Yeah. And they might help someone else, like we were saying earlier. Like, they might help someone and not someone else. Mm-hmm. So it's really, like, maybe <laughs> that yeah. would be great. But I don't feel, like, confidently saying, like, we can totally get rid of your fibromyalgia is, like, a legit statement. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. It just doesn't feel like that's totally um, credible, even though, like, I can see her heart behind it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think with that stuff, like, there's a huge amount of confirmation bias. So, like, it's also kind of people, and I'm sure you've seen this on Instagram, like, people who get into the, like, wellness coaching space or, like, right. nutrition coaching. And then also, yeah. na- like, some people who get into naturopathy. It's like mm-hmm. they have either had an experience or been close to someone who's had an experience where making yeah. those changes did make the like made the difference so right. and it's it's like a predictable set of changes right it's like yeah make sure that all of your like uh you know go to maybe a paleo diet or something in that family mm-hmm. you know like <laughs> right. focus on nutrition get nutritious foods make sure that you're getting yeah. all the nutrients that you don't get normally like take yeah. all of these supplements make sure your thyroid levels are like there's like a a checklist right. yeah and, definitely. and i think I genuinely believe this. Like, I think it must be true that a certain percentage of people who experience, like, really, really tough fatigue and maybe a certain yeah. amount of pain mm-hmm. are fixed by that. Like, I think right. they must be because they're the ones who go into these professions and then Definitely. say, like, changing my diet changed my life. Right. And then also use their story of just themselves getting better to be like, and you can too. Yeah. Yeah, which I feel like, like, comes from a good place, but then at the same time, there's so much lack of understanding in that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Like, I also think that it comes from a good place, but I think that, like, well, I think a bunch of things about this. I think that when (laughs) when you are that person, Mm -hmm. and, like, I've certainly had the experience where changing my diet has, like, gotten rid of some major symptoms. And so I get that, like, when that happens, you want to tell everybody, because if you can help anybody alleviate that that problem then like you want to be able to do that but also it's like you don't you you don't necessarily believe the people who are telling you that it doesn't work for them like Mm -hmm. because that's like a threat to your own success yeah it's weird definitely yeah and there's definitely like this other dynamic that's similar to that that i've heard um recently which is like a lot of people who um don't believe invisible illnesses exists and exist and like when you're trying to explain to them what it what it's like and that it's real they just aren't hearing you Mm -hmm. there's like some thoughts about that that's like maybe they're just kind of trying to reassure themselves that it won't happen to them oh totally (laughs) definitely so it's like i mean i feel like i was in that place for Mm -hmm. a long time like about a lot of other things especially like mental illness and Mm -hmm. um 
stuff like that. I think I was in a similar place where I just didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. And because I didn't understand it and I was afraid of it happening to me, I have said insensitive things that Mm -hmm. like I understand now are not nice at all. And like, I wouldn't ever do it again. Right. Um, But I think there's a lot of lack of understanding. And like, I actually have a friend who once told me that um, she thought everything I was feeling was in my head. She actually directly said to me, like, do you think it's all in your head? (laughs) And I was like, no. And she was like, but are you sure? And I was like, yes, I'm definitely sure. Like all of these are legit symptoms and I've been medically diagnosed and I know I'm not like making this stuff up. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually like, (laughs) I was tempted at that time, like, because when people say things like that, it can be really frustrating. And she was actually the first one to ever say that to me. Yeah. So it was kind of like this moment where I felt like all this like tension, like building up in me. And I was like, I really wanted to like react and be like, ah, no. Yeah. But at the same time, like I loved her. She was really like connected to me. So I didn't want to do that. So I just lovingly explained it. And I was like, you know, I mean, even though it's invisible, there's a lot of things that people can be going through that are not visible on the outside. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to explain things to her. And I like explained some of the sciences that that have been found about fibromyalgia and that kind of stuff. And she actually completely came around, which I did not (laughs) expect. But she like totally believes me now. And I'm like, wow, what a gift. That's like a really nice testimony for me that like not everyone that's saying that is just out there trying to get you. Like there's people out there that say that, that truly just don't understand. Yeah. And um, so having that now is really nice because she checks in with me sometimes and she's like, Hey, how are you feeling? And like, when I see her, she's like, how have you been? And she gives me a gentle hug. And if she forgets to, she's like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Yeah. So like, there's so much like love in that now. And I'm really thankful that I didn't choose to react. And I chose to just be like, Hey, this mm-hmm. is what this is about yeah because that really I think changed how our future friendship became yeah so that's been a like a big lesson for me I feel like because it's so easy to get in that place where you're like so defensive against anyone who says that mm-hmm. because there are people out there that are really like really mean about it like really really mean and it's very hurtful yeah um but I think there's definitely a lot of people out there, too, that are just misled and misinformed oh, yeah. and ignorant. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, it's a very delicate thing. Yeah. Like, to handle. Yeah. It's, I think it's really difficult because of what you just said. I think there's definitely some bad actors out there. But, like, yeah. <laughs> for the most part, I mean, that's, like, that's the message that's in the culture. So mm-hmm. if, you know, you kind of never really dug into fibromyalgia or again I'm going to put ME in this bucket because I think they're the same in this way too like if you've never had cause to research this on your own then definitely all of the messaging that you've been getting is it's like this kind of weird nebulous thing not all doctors are sure it exists like maybe it's just a mental health issue like Mm -hmm. I don't I don't blame people who have never had cause to question that for not having questioned it and at the same time Mm -hmm. I think like it takes a lot of work to have that conversation when it's personal. And so like what can be hard is when it's someone that you care about, it's worth doing that work. And when it's like, you know, like some 
jerk at a party that you're making small talk <laughs> yeah. with and you're just like i can't do this for you it's not yeah, worth exactly. like i can't go through it right. the arc of this conversation yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, and i also think it's really pernicious because like when you get diagnosed with a condition like that or think that maybe you have a condition like that, it can be really easy to believe that about yourself too. Totally. Or like constantly mm-hmm. battle the like, but what if it is just in my head? Like what yeah. if I could just choose not to feel this way? Right. And that's yeah. exhausting too, I think. It's very exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still have thoughts like that sometimes, even though like I know that's not the case. I mm-hmm. still have times where I'm like, could this really all be in my head and then I just have to remind myself like no there's a bunch of evidence that it's not right and it's not like I mean there's a lot of people out there who go through the same thought process oh yeah am I really like making all this up and it's really scary when you're in that place and you don't have a support system or you don't have the evidence to reassure you that it's not Mm -hmm. because it's just like I feel like it's a natural kind of human response to be like what if I am making this up? Um, but I think when it becomes dangerous is when you don't have, um, you don't have people around you who can reassure you that it's not that you're really going through that. Mm -hmm. And also when you don't have the evidence in yourself Mm -hmm. that like, you don't know the actual scientific stuff about it. And that can really, I feel like that can really mess with your mental health. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Quite severely. Yeah. And I think so, that's like, especially kind of at the beginning. So mm-hmm. kind of between symptom onset and diagnosis, I'll say, when yeah. most people, you like, you don't really know what to Google. Like, you're not plugged into a that's community. Fine. You're just right. like experiencing the symptoms. And then maybe you go to a doctor who's even less helpful than your doctor. Like, right. and you kind of are like in this limbo yeah. for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then right after you get diagnosed, again, if you don't, if you're not like plugged into, say, a community on social media, yeah, you could still like Google the wrong thing and find a bunch of skeptics Absolutely. and be like, oh, shit, yeah. I have a contested diagnosis and all these people yeah. think I'm making it up. And am I making it up? Like, right. it's it's a form yeah. of gaslighting, basically. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you have to like somehow develop this filter, especially when you're like researching your own symptoms, which is still difficult for me sometimes but um like I mean you can easily think that you're dying by Mm -hmm. researching any symptom on the internet definitely there's so much out there like you can there's like so many extremes like you can either be like I am going to die or you can be like there's nothing wrong with me right so it's like so difficult with all that information out there and um if you don't have like the um filter in your mind or like the um professionals that have spoken to you um saying that it's not um all in your head Mm -hmm. it's really difficult yeah it really is and it stays difficult i think even Mm -hmm. one thing like i think i've I've probably talked about this in other episodes but i found out this summer that i have um small fiber neuropathy which is like Mm -hmm. A type of nerve damage, basically. Right. And they identify yeah. it through biopsy and they discover, like, if your nerve density is below whatever the lab range is, then you have this yeah. kind of nerve damage. And mm-hmm. um, I haven't done a ton of research on this, but from what I understand, it, like, the symptoms, so the experience of small fiber neuropathy overlaps with fibro a lot. Okay. And so some people who are diagnosed with fibro find out that they have 
this kind of neuropathy. Like, this Mm -hmm. is a nerve damage that they have. And one of the things about it is, like, all of a sudden it goes from this, like, conceptual neurological pain problem, which is kind of what Mm -hmm. fibro is right now because they don't know the mechanism, to Mm -hmm. this, like, it's still not explained. So, like, there are some causes that have been identified, but most people who have this kind of neuropathy, they don't know why. Mm -hmm. It's still idiopathic. But, like, all of a sudden the mechanism of why you're in pain is, like, validated and Mm -hmm. it's a weird shift like right so for you know the two years that i had nerve pain that i didn't know that it was nerve damage like all the time i was just like like can i even call this pain what do i even call it i'm uncomfortable Mm -hmm. but like maybe maybe it's in my head maybe it's just like (laughs) i whatever whatever and then Mm -hmm. the, the like experiential shift for me of being able to just be like I have nerve damage. This is my nerve yeah. damage talking. Yeah. It's a really weird change and it's messed mm-hmm. up. I think it's incredibly yeah. messed up that like when we know that we don't know that much about the body yet, like yeah, <laughs> most things we don't actually have an explanation for. But all of a sudden, like the part of my brain that wants to question myself, it gets to be like, no, you have this sliver of credibility. Yeah, and exactly. It, it's it's just like it's such a mess to untangle but because yeah. i'm still like processing and researching about this i just feel really aware of it right now right it's weird yeah sure um yeah yeah and uh, about the like initial stage of like when you first find out what's going on um and all that confusion i actually recently got to connect with a friend who is going through that right now mm-hmm. where she's like finding out everything that's wrong with her and connecting the dots with how things were when she was younger and like realizing different things that can be explained by this that she never really had an explanation for before mm-hmm. and so I <laughs> I actually feel really thankful to have that opportunity to speak with her because I feel like in the last few years of um coming from that diagnosis to growing through it, to connecting with the community Mm -hmm. and um, learning how to be vulnerable and share my story. Um, I think I've learned a lot through that. And I like, since I've been through that diagnostic like stage and come out of it, Mm -hmm. I'm thankful that I'm able to connect to connect with her now because um, I feel like I've been able to mentor her a bit through this process. And I didn't have someone like that. Mm-hmm. when I was going through that stage and so I feel kind of like honored to be in that position where like I can be someone to answer questions or to just be a sounding board for her mm-hmm. and to reassure her like that this is like these are answers she's finding and that even though there's a lot of like questioning now um there will be more answers in the future and I mean there may always be questions because mm-hmm. I mean that's where I am right now and I yeah. feel like it's potent. It's definitely a potential that I could not find all the answers, and that's actually probable. Right. <laughs> um, but it's like this stage can be very scary and very like, like I was saying earlier, very reassuring, but also very like feeling like, oh, okay, well, this is something that might not ever go away. Yeah. And so it's really difficult. Um, but I think that I don't know. It's just it feels like a privilege to be that for her to be mm-hmm. able to be someone who's been through it and able to speak with her about it. Cause I think she's going through like this stage of that validation, but 
also a lot of wondering like if she's making things up in her head and yeah um and also that stage of kind of trusting doctors a lot because like i think in some ways trusting doctors can be great but in other ways you have to be the advocate for you're the advocate for yourself because Mm -hmm. like i mean doctors are not gonna find the answers all the time and also they're not always gonna know where to look yeah so they do have to know how to explain what you're going through but you also have to know how to look things up and how to try to figure things out on your own so you can give suggestions and also know when your doctor is making a bad decision and you need to stand up and be like no we need to do this yeah like it's really scary yeah standing up to someone like that because obviously you don't have the medical training that they do so it can be intimidating but Mm -hmm. at the same time i think a lot of us in the chronic chronic illness community have learned that we have to stand up for ourselves yeah medical professionals because no one else is going to (laughs) so it's like we have to learn what times it's essential that we stand up for ourselves because in some search situations nothing's gonna be done if we don't stand up and say hey no we need to do that or like yes we need to do this and like that kind of thing um yeah. I think it's really important to come to that place, but it's also really scary mm-hmm. and um, really intimidating, especially in the beginning. Yeah. And I think like, because there's, I mean, we see like, there's images on social media about this all the time where like doctors, some doctors have an attitude of like, your Google search, like doesn't compare to my medical degree <laughs> or whatever. Right. Like, yeah. and even just seeing that stuff teaches you as a patient that you shouldn't bring up anything that you learned from your own research and like that's not going to help you and I think it's really important to realize something that seems obvious to me now but I just didn't ever have to think about this before which is that like under our current medical system and I say this about the United States and about Canada like doctors have 20 minutes to spend with you maybe and then they have to go and spend 20 minutes with the next patient and the next patient and the next patient Mm -hmm. and they're probably running behind and they're probably like they're not leaving your 20 minutes together with an opportunity to like think about what you said, process what you said, and do research about what you said. The system does not have room for that at all. It Mm -hmm. is not set up to support chronic patients. It's not set up to support complex cases. And so Mm -hmm. I think like when you realize that, yeah, sure, doctors with attitudes will be mean to you if you've done research and that's a problem and you need to learn how to deal with that. But when you also realize like, even the most caring doctor, their mm-hmm. job does not put them in a position where they can even take your full history or exactly. go out and research it. And so Definitely. that has been like a game changer for me of like, mm-hmm. I would love it if doctors could do that. I think that would be yeah. great. That's what they should be mm-hmm. able to do. But like right. the system literally does not empower them to do that right now. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, we need to help ourselves. We just have to. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's, like, so many situations with that where, like, in some cases, that um, understanding and compassion of, like, what their job allows them to do and what it doesn't Mm -hmm. is really important to um, come to a place of understanding and knowing how to navigate. But then there's also those situations where, like, if you find a doctor who is just in this place that's, like, no, you don't have anything wrong with you and they're not willing to budge, you have to have the strength to say no 
I'm going to go find someone else. Oh, yeah. You're obviously not helping. Yeah. And that can be really scary, too, because especially if you're in that place where the doctor is so, so adamant that there's nothing going on with you, that can put you in another vulnerable position of being even more convinced that you're making it up. Yeah. So it's it's so difficult to navigate sometimes, but you got to somehow find that backbone, I guess, of like being um, standing up for yourself and believing yourself, even if no one else does. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to like, I totally agree. And to add, because what I was just describing is like a best case scenario with a doctor, (laughs) because on top of like doctors who are just going to not believe it, like also Mm -hmm. medical bias is real. Like women get different care. People of color get different care. People who are told to lose weight get different care. Young people get different care. Like all of these things are complicating factors and I'm not at all like dismissing them. I'm just saying that even in an optimal situation, yeah, like with a doctor who completely believes everything that you tell them and wants to help you, they're Mm -hmm. still not set up to help you that well definitely yeah like, and that's like completely out of their control yeah too and that's yeah. like really understanding that and how that impacts mm-hmm. care has like it hurts my head because like yeah it's it's awful yeah, mm-hmm. um okay but anyway <laughs> so i feel like we're mostly caught up to the present on your story yeah. is that right mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah is there anything else about chronic illness and this whole experience um, that you wanted to talk about that we haven't gotten to somehow? Um, yeah, so I feel like there was, but <laughs> I, once again, it's <laughs> run out of my brain. That's okay. Um, uh, so one of the things you were talking about earlier was um, like finding uh, an answer or like a... Um, a term, I guess, that you can put to your symptoms that can be um, reassuring mm-hmm. that you have them. And uh, um, also sometimes can completely change your perspective on like what you thought it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happened to me fairly recently, like within the year, I would say. Um, I suspected that I might have costochondritis for a while, which is like an inflammation around the sternum. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I suspected that, but then I kept looking at things and feeling like, ah, like I don't know, because like it was so specific, specific <laughs> about the um, the sternum that I was like, well, my pain isn't completely just around my sternum, so I don't know. So I was like thinking about it for a long time, but didn't always really mention it to my doctor and my sister has it. So it was another one of those situations where I was kind of bouncing ideas and symptoms off of her. And um, I just kind of didn't have that confidence that it was that for a long time. And then one day I was having really bad symptoms of that. And I realized that time that the pain was completely just my sternum. Like it was just around my sternum. And I was like, oh, okay, well maybe it is costochondritis then. Um, So I actually went and talked to my doctor about it and I told her what was going on. And she told me that it was probably costochondritis. Mm -hmm. But then she told me that it often goes away after a while. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Because I know my sister has had it for a really long time. And she also has fibro. So I didn't realize that it was something that would go away. 
And then my doctor said, well, with chronic illness, it's more complicated, especially with fibromyalgia, because it may come and go. Mm-hmm. And it may stay for a lot longer than it would in a normal person. So I was like, oh, okay. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, that was like an explanation of that. But then it started making things complicated. Like I, I realized a lot of that pain was costochondritis. But then it kind of put me in this interesting position where um, a lot of my anxiety that I experience causes pain and like tingling sensations in my like chest and pec area Mm -hmm. um and so then it put me in this position where i was like okay is this anxiety or is this costochondritis right (laughs) so it was like i'm kind of still in that place where i'm like sometimes i don't really know if it's anxiety or if it's just costochondritis but then it kind of explains some other things because when i was a kid i used to have a lot of pain in my chest when i um was about to do something or whatever. And I figured it was nervousness, but I remember never feeling nervous. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't feel the emotion of nervousness, but I felt like the physical sensation of it. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, was that costochondritis back then? then? Like, was it, was it that that was flaring up and not anxiety? Cause I didn't actually feel anxious, but I felt like the sensation. So like, I'm still in that place where I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. And I wonder, like, if that ever ends, that, like, trying to make meaning as soon as you get new words for things, you go, Mm -hmm. oh, was that that? Was that that? Was that that? And I feel like I've, like, reshuffled my interpretation of my own experiences a number of times Yeah, based on that. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's, like, when, especially when you have so many different conditions Mm -hmm. that are Mm -hmm. medically diagnosed, it gets confusing because it's, like, (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot of conditions where the symptoms overlap. So right. if you have conditions where they overlap, it's sometimes like, okay, well, this could be that, but it could also be this. And then sometimes you come to a situation where you're just like, well, okay, it doesn't really matter because like I have both of them. So it could be either, but like, there's no way I'm going to find out. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a really confusing place to be in. And mm-hmm. I feel like the best way I've learned to describe it is just like, feeling like I'm this big like sprawled out puzzle um because like I feel like I don't know I feel like I'm a puzzle with a bunch of missing pieces and a bunch of pieces in the wrong places and Mm -hmm. I just I don't have a reference photo and like I don't know what I'm doing yeah like (laughs) I feel like that's the best way for me to describe my experience with being chronically ill because it's so complicated and interconnected Mm -hmm. and confusing yeah (laughs) Yeah, and I genuinely don't know if that ever resolves, I think. Right. Yeah, Yeah. like, I think maybe, I think some people get more comfortable with the, like, the uncertainty of it, Mm -hmm. and I think, yeah, it's a very relatable problem (laughs) or description. Yeah. Oh, one other thing, that's what I forgot about. Um, The other thing I wanted to talk about was... Um, you were saying different people dif- get different care, um, like women, people of color and mm-hmm. all kinds of things like that. Um, and so that got me thinking, like, one of the biggest things I've experienced is um, like discrimination based on how old I am mm-hmm. as far as like disability goes, because yeah. especially from older people, mm-hmm. when you tell them you're in a lot of pain, they're like, oh, just wait till you get older. Yep. <laughs> and like yes, I mean, getting older, your body can 
like most of the time it deteriorates and yes you get pain from that but there's so much like dismissive attitude especially in the older community of like if you're young you can't be in pain Mm -hmm. and I think that the generations they came from there was a lot of lack of understanding about chronic illness about invisible illness yeah specifically and also specifically about fibromyalgia Mm -hmm. um and emmy yeah because i think both of them when they were first discovered like they were considered hysteria like (laughs) they were called mass hysteria and it was like this crazy thing that they didn't know sorry just use that word (laughs) it was like this thing that they didn't know um what was going on with people and so they called it mass hysteria because they didn't understand and i mean i can't even imagine how damaging that was for the people that went through it Mm -hmm. at the time Mm -hmm. um but i think coming out of those generations the older generations have a harder under like a harder time understanding um the new developments in medical knowledge and um the reality that you can be in a lot of pain And you can be very fatigued when you're really young. Yeah. So it can put you in a really difficult position, especially if you haven't developed that backbone, like I was talking about earlier, where you can stand up for yourself. Because if you haven't developed that, I mean, even if you have, (laughs) honestly, like it can be really painful and damaging when Mm -hmm. you're talking to someone about something and like being open with them. Yeah. And they're so dismissive. Yeah. Especially if, um, like for me, I've come to a place of being quite open with everyone. And like, I've come to this place where like, I'm open with you. And if you just decide to be dismissive, whatever, there's a lot of people that are not that way. So it doesn't really impact me as much. But before I opened up for like, pretty much completely, it was really difficult. And it still is sometimes because opening up can be such a significant thing. Mm -hmm. And especially if you don't do it so frequently, it can be so um, just scary, even just opening up in and of itself. But if you open up and then you're completely dismissed or treated like you're ridiculous or um, even like (laughs) thinking about those things or like claiming that you're in pain or whatever. Yeah. It can be so incredibly damaging. Yeah. Really difficult. And even with like doctors, sometimes they can (laughs) treat you like you're not in pain just because you're young, which is really strange because I just wonder like they're doctors. So like, why, (laughs) why wouldn't they have experienced that? Yeah. Um, But I feel like just with everything, having a chronic illness you're always going to run into people who don't understand and you're always going to run into people who um will say really insensitive things that can hurt a lot and I think one of the life skills that we kind of are forced to learn is to not only stand up for ourselves but to believe in ourselves and to have the boundaries to say I don't need you in my life because you're not willing to um be kind you know yeah you're not willing to change your perspective yeah yeah boundaries that could be like its own enormous discussion (laughs) but I definitely (laughs) agree as it's like Mm -hmm. so many people some people like your example earlier about your friend who you were like hey like I'm gonna really tell you about this and hope that you understand compared to sometimes you're like 
the effort that I would have to put into trying to get through to you about this. It's, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. I don't have that yeah. energy right now. And it's exactly. okay to like mm-hmm. put up boundaries around like yeah. who you're, even who you're going to be honest with. Because like, Definitely. I'm with you. I like mm-hmm. put it out there. I think vulnerability yeah. is really, really important. I think it helps yeah. like take people out of isolation when you realize that you're not the only one going through it. But also Definitely. like, you don't need to like rip your skin off for every exactly. like, disbelieving person out there. Like they don't, right. they haven't earned it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's totally up to you. And it's like <laughs> with like that not having energy in mind, like that's often a thing that happens. And really like, it's completely up to you. If you feel like you don't have the energy to explain something to someone or even that they're just not worth explaining it to. Yeah. Don't feel guilty for saying no and for not like, being willing to do that because it really comes down to what you know you can handle and what you know is okay with yourself and it's you got to come to an understanding of where you're at with that and be okay with it Mm -hmm. because if you don't have to save everyone you know you don't have to convince everyone it's not your responsibility to do that Mm -hmm. yes resounding (laughs) yes and I think that's a great place to leave it actually yeah yeah It's a good conclusion. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time and the energy to talk to me because I do not take that lightly. Yeah, Um, thank you as well. I'm really honored to be on this podcast and I have been listening to it for a very long time and I really admire what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. you. Yeah, it's been fun is the wrong word, but I love doing it. (laughs) Right. I think it's great. Thank you for listening to episode 61 of No End in Sight. I want to add a quick postscript here from Mahala, who realized afterward that she'd missed a few things she wanted to share. She said that she's now in a place where she's unemployed and actively pursuing disability benefits because she's realizing that unless something changes significantly, she can't maintain a job and be independent in the way our culture might expect. In that process, she's been wrestling with the feeling that she's not disabled enough or that applying for disability is like a life sentence. She thought some of you might relate to that feeling, and I bet she's right. You can find Mahala on Twitter at Mahala May and Instagram at Thoughtful Flutterings. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at BenSB, and of course you can find this show on Instagram at no.end.in.site.pod. Plus, don't forget to check out the new No End in Sight collection on Medium, where you'll find stories and essays about life with chronic illness. You can find that at medium.com slash no-end-in-site. As usual, don't forget that I have a small Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. It's quiet but growing, and you'll even find a few podcast guests in the group. And finally... This podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When I'm up for it, I make simple modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang in your home. I've got dozens of really simple icons that you can customize as much as you want. And I'd love it if you checked us out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.